0: You're listening to the So What Podcast.
1: And as as evangelicals, especially as Protestants, I don't believe the common narrative right now that that there is necessarily misogynism baked into what we believe, but I do think we can slip into functional misogynism from time to time. I mean, you ask, name me five righteous men in the Bible, and they're going to name the first five disciples. Name five righteous women, and it's almost difficult. As Protestants, we need to uh, swing the pendulum back and recognize this is a girl who had been honoring the Lord.
0: Welcome to the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues to ask that obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Beshears, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Dave Kakish, Matt O'Reilly, and Brad Mills. On today's episode, our cast of contributors discuss the fourth line in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. In it, we raise the question over whether or not Protestants are guilty of holding a low view of Mary due to a knee-jerk theological reaction to a high Roman Catholic Mariology. Then we discuss the whole point of the virginal conception. After all, why did Jesus need to be conceived by a virgin in the first place? Well, before heading over to the discussion, we'd just like again to thank you for listening to So What Podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help our podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at Podcast.com. Questions about this and any future episodes can be submitted by emailing hello at Podcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at what underscore podcast. Without further ado, let's head over to our discussion. We've been working our way through the Apostles' Creed, and today we find ourselves in the fourth line, which I'd like to actually read the third line to to remind us of what it was that we were talking about in the last episode and sort of of, uh, pushes into this episode. Last week, or last episode, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now, obviously... Elephant in the room, we're all Protestants here, and today uh, we're going to talk a lot about uh, Mary, or at least I should say the first half of the episode, we'll we'll talk about Mary. Um, And if we're honest with ourselves, and we have a little bit of a confession here, Protestants are notorious for having a low Mariology, a a lower view of Mary. Um, Maybe a pendulum swing from our separation historically with uh, the Roman Catholic Church do you think uh, that we're right in that way, or is there a need for a reevaluation of who Mary is within Protestant thought?
2: Yes, I think I think Protestants would do well to reconsider the importance of Mary. So, so I, I would agree with the suggestion that our resistance to saying much about Mary is probably an overreaction to Catholic Marian mm-hmm. dogmas, but. You know, if you look at the New Testament, you have really exalted language uh, spoken of her from times. You know, so in the Magnificat, which is a prayer that's in Book of Common Prayer, prayed by millions of believers throughout the ages over the over the uh, the centuries, He has looked with favor on the lowliness of His servant. Surely, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. So, so Mary recognizes that she has been selected by God Mm -hmm. for a Unique vocation, and 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 she anticipates a reputation that comes with that, uh, where generations look look back and say she's blessed, she's unique, she has a, a different role. Now, I would counsel those under my pastoral care against inviting Mary to intercede before them on beh- on their behalf. You know, I wouldn't right. I wouldn't have them pray to Mary, but I I do think we would do well. Um, and I've preached sermons on. Uh, the Mary passages, uh, and sort of made the point that, you know, here, here is a woman who models discipleship. Um, I mean, she was put in a a stunningly difficult position. That's right. Um, could have lost her life. That's right. Um, you know, her her betrothal was certainly in question and yet she is entirely submitted to what her God calls her to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and and that's no easy task i dare say any of us sitting around the table you know uh, have have been called to do something like what she was called to do not even close um, no and, with the danger and uh, for her and the, the social stigma um and, and there's so many things you know there's a reason she went away <laughs>
1: right yeah and as as evangelicals especially as protestants i don't believe the common narrative right now that that there is necessarily misogynism baked into what we believe, but I do think we can slip into functional misogynism from time Mm -hmm. to time. I mean, you ask uh, just a church member uh, that's been coming for many years, name me five righteous men in the Bible, and they're going to name the first five disciples, name five righteous women, and it's almost difficult. Mm -hmm. And if you say we want to be like Moses and wait on the Lord and say, I'm not going to go unless you go or like Abraham who trusted and went when he didn't know where he was going or like Daniel's in the lion's den or David and uh, trusting God and and submitting to Saul and, and, and not taking his life when he could have. We have all these examples of godly men. And yet to hear a pastor say from the pulpit, we need to be like Mary. Who submitted to the Father's will as well, and what God had for her, trusted well, All of a sudden, when a Protestant says we need to be like Mary, or we need to recognize yeah. that Mary's blessed, it kind of makes our ears itch. And this functional misogynism, I'm, I'm speaking to, and I don't want to throw a publishing house under the bus, but I, I was online today, and it was an ad popped up, and it's a new book from a Christian publishing house. And it's called "Wicked Women of the Bible," and I was like, "Well, that's great, because mm. that's what we need." Uh, and, and so. As Protestants, we need to uh, swing the pendulum back and recognize that she was recognized by God to be a righteous person. The mm-hmm. posture of her heart was aimed at obeying God. No, there are no righteous, no, not one, as far as legal standing, but she wanted to obey God in all that she did. She wasn't chosen because she was living fast and loose. Uh, Listen to right. Led Zeppelin in the back right. of her dad's Cadillac making out with her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Right? This is a girl who had been
2: honoring the Lord. And, and that, that comes... From- through, particularly in the contrast in Luke's gospel between Mary and Zechariah, mm. right? Mm. So Zechariah comes along and he gets sort of a similar message, your wife is going to conceive in her old age, um, and he doesn't buy the story. He doesn't believe. Um, and, and, and so here's a guy who's ministering in the temple. He doesn't believe the word of the Lord, and she does. A young girl. You know, and so here she is being cast in a greater light in the gospel narrative than this, you know, well-regarded man of Israel.
0: Yeah, very, very counterintuitive. You would think. Yeah.
1: Zechariah's wife conceives naturally. She's married. Yeah. He just yeah. doesn't believe that it can he happen just because he's old. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't believe in
2: the miracle. Believes and she's unmarried and she's going to conceive by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. That's great. So, which is spectacular. So she stands in the Gospels for us as a model mm-hmm. of Christian discipleship.
0: Yeah, and, and you say that I, I love the the the, the thought. Um, Making those connections when you when you said uh, you, we have our heroes of faith are, are typically male. Uh, I think about Gabriel and his appearances. Right. So the the first time we see Gabriel is in Daniel. What does he describe Daniel to be? He is greatly loved by God. Huge message sent to Daniel. Fast forward into the Gospels in Luke chapter one, Gabriel appears to Mary. This is the last time we see Gabriel, if I'm not mistaken, and he says, "You are." Highly favored. We, we tend to look at, like you said, Daniel as being the, the greater example. Uh, but we have Gabriel essentially giving the exact identical message to the two. I, I think that's huge.
2: Yeah, and so so the the an important part of that is she's greeted, greetings favored one, highly favored one. And then there's the statement, the Lord is with you, mm-hmm. right, which is not the case with everyone. Um, and then her response to that is one of, she's perplexed, the text says. So she's almost sort of taken aback mm-hmm. at this very unusual thing that the angel of the Lord is saying to her. Um, so even Mary is a bit surprised by her blessedness, so uh, perhaps we should be too.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's good.
3: Well, I, you know, in general, going back to the question, I would say yes, we have disregarded Mary um, to a certain extent, but you know, maybe to just insert a little bit larger context here, it seems that as Jesus' ministry is developing, Mary seems to to maybe take a step back. I mean, for instance, in, in Mark chapter 3, uh, Mary and Jesus' brothers come, and they're standing outside and send in for Jesus, and they say, hey, listen, your mother and your brothers are looking for you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And so I just bring that up to say that in this case, at least, Jesus tempers uh, maybe our view of Mary, that she's important for sure. But also he inserts the fact that those people who do the will of God are his brother and sister and mother. He elevates disciples to a level of standing that maybe ought to temper the view we take of Mary. I mean, what do you guys think about that?
1: I'd like to take that. I mean, I think a lot of us want to be centered people. I, I've, I've quoted before, it's one of my favorite Luther quotes, uh, I think in our episode with Dr. Haken, where Luther says, human reason is like trying to help a, a drunk man get on a horse. We're likely to fall off on either side. And as Protestants, I think we want to recognize first and foremost what we've done wrong and not honoring someone who has set the posture of their heart to obeying God even in the midst of impossible circumstances that we've never seen before. And yet... We want to put on the brakes where we may go too far, right? And swing the Mm -hmm. pendulum all the way the other way. We don't believe that Mary is the queen of heaven. Mm -hmm. We don't believe that she's the mediatrix and shared in the suffering that Christ bore on the cross for us all. We don't believe, as Matt said, uh, that we should venerate her in the sense that we would pray to her. Or ask her to intercede for us because there's only one mediator between God and man. It's the man, Christ Jesus. And maybe to segue in the second topic that we want to talk about today, we don't believe that she had an immaculate conception. And the distinction and between immaculate conception and a virgin birth. So I'm going to toss that out there. What yeah. is the difference?
0: No, no you... you You said it kind of funny. Maybe some listeners would would have paused there. What do you mean her immaculate conception? I thought Jesus was the one who was immaculately uh, conceived. Is is that the proper use of the term?
1: And we're also not talking about the Steelers game. No. Because that was the immaculate reception. That's the immaculate reception. Okay.
0: So so we got the Steelers out of the way. Uh, The immaculate (laughs) conception. Immaculate conception. That's not necessarily talking about Jesus, is
1: it? So when some say Immaculate Conception, it's a Roman Catholic doctrine that believes that Mary was born without sin. She was kept from sinning. And the reason they went that way is not to say that like Jesus, she did not sin and lived the perfect life, but so much more they wanted to say that They're trying to deal with the problem that we have, that all who are born in Adam, Romans 5 tells us this, because Adam's sin, he affects all of his children. And from that point, all of his children are born into sin. And we know that from even David's prayer, he says, you know, from the day I was conceived, I was born into sin. So how can we keep this spotless sacrifice that we know we need to have? We see it in the Levitical system, and Jesus needs to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He cannot have sin, and yet he must be born of a woman, so how can he be born of a woman and not conceived in sin? Mm -hmm. And that's the conundrum they're at. And there are different translations of Scripture, and in the early uh, Roman church, they thought that the best translation, the authorized translation of the church, was the Latin Vulgate. And the Latin Vulgate wasn't necessarily the best translation of Scripture. And in the Latin Vulgate in Romans 5.12, we have it, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all men, because all sinned. Well, there in the Vulgate, when Augustine was reading it, it says, in whom all sinned, and not because. It wasn't a causal statement. It was a prepositional statement. And so when it said, in whom all sinned, he took that to mean that we are all in Adam. We were present with him in Adam. Seminally, I will say, and if you need to look that up, uh, take a second. You can pause uh, it and we come back.
0: Have warned parents if they have children in the car. If your six-year-old is listening, <laughs> you may want to send them out
1: of the room. And so Jesus needed to be conceived by the Spirit to avoid the seminal spread of original sin. Yet you still have a sinful mother.
2: Mm-hmm. So how
1: can we avoid that? So Mary was immaculately conceived. She was born without sin. So now you have a sinless mother. And the Holy Spirit is the sinless father in a sense. Uh, But I'll let it, that's the background story now. What are the problems with that? What are the ramifications, theological ramifications of that? If you have someone who can be born without sin, who's not Christ.
0: Yeah. Well, why why not more than Mary? I mean, why couldn't God have made a bunch of people sinless and just do away? Yeah, it? it would save tons of trouble. We wouldn't need the cross now. Uh, there wouldn't there wouldn't need to be sacrifice if God could just skip past all of that and 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 start to to create people sinlessly. I think that's probably the biggest thing that would yeah. jump out in my mind.
2: And, and, and in in the Romans passage too, I mean, it's the the issue there is the Adamic covenant. Right? Yeah, and yeah. So there's right. sort of a patriarchal thing happening, and and the mother you know Eve isn't mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, it's by participating in Adam. Um, and it's not necessarily a biological participation because it's, um, you know, set in contrast to being in Christ. And none of us are biologically related to Jesus. Uh, so, so, I mean, in Romans, I would say biology doesn't figure into it. Uh, motherhood doesn't figure into it. Um, this is This is about sort of. A covenantal or judicial. Would you say like maybe inheritance
0: language? So the inheritance that we're receiving from Adam is death. Yeah, you know, right, right.
2: A lot of times when I when I want to explain this, I'll use the language of a, um, a team captain. Right. So in a football game, uh, the team captains go out to the fifty yard line. They flip a coin, and when the captain calls the toss, he calls it on behalf of the whole team, Mm -hmm. right? So he doesn't say, you know, we'll take the south end zone and the rest of the team goes off to the north end zone. That would be ridiculous. His action, his decision, his his behavior is imputed to or reckoned to or attributed to everyone he represents, everybody with the same jersey. And so our problem is um, we're born with Adam calling the toss for us, and we need Jesus. The solution is we need Jesus to call the toss. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think you know, the Immaculate Conception answers a lot of questions that don't, aren't really raised in mm. that, in that text.
3: If we look back at her uh, initial blessing and and praise to God that we've referenced earlier here in Luke chapter one, I mean, she says, "My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior." And so, at least on some level, I mean, a person who needs a Savior uh, needs to be saved from something. Um, and I, and I guess maybe we could, since she talks about God's acts in uh, in in sort of fulfillment of his Abrahamic covenant you know maybe she sees it in, in that sense that God is Savior finally fulfilling his promise to Abraham but at least on another level you'd think that uh, a sinful person's the person who needs a savior and and Mary recognizes that that's exactly who God is he's the one who will save his people
2: you you also see um, I mean there's there's a nuanced picture of Mary in the New Testament right so in Luke you have you know blessed are you among women but like we mentioned before maybe in the previous episode Mary thinks Jesus is crazy in the gospel of Mark, right? So even with the promise of, you know, the angelic appearance and the promise, and she receives that in faith earlier, you know, in her adolescence, when Jesus has grown, she has some struggles. She has some things that she doesn't get. Maybe, you know, I mean, is it a sin to think that the Messiah is crazy? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, maybe, <laughs> you know, so, so the, the picture I think in the new Testament is maybe a little more nuanced than we often, um, either Protestant or Catholic give it credit for. Right. Um, and we would do well to kind of take the text for what it says there.
0: So, so far we, we've been talking about, uh, Jesus Christ, God's only son being born of Mary really is the, the conversation thus far. We've not really talked about Virgin Mary. Mm-hmm. I and mean, Why does she need to be a virgin? Uh, What are the implications of that? Because in our modern day, when you come to a miracle on par with a virgin conceiving, it makes this story seem like lunacy.
2: Yeah. Well, she—first of all, before I answer that question, let me say, I find it helpful to speak about a virginal conception rather Mm -hmm. than a virgin Mm -hmm. birth, because what does that even mean, virgin birth? Right. the, the, the Jesus was conceived while Mary was in a, a virgin state. Um, the significance of that is that it gives us a human Jesus, right? So, so Jesus is conceived through the agency of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, so that um, he comes, he is born both fully divine, fully God, and fully human. Um, and that's important. Because if he were fully God and not human, then he couldn't be one who affects reconciliation between God and humanity. And mm-hmm. if he were fully human and not God, same same issue. So we need the God-man um, to be one of us, but yet unique in his relationship to um, the Creator God um, and the fact that he ontologically embodies the Creator God. Um and it's important to 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 make sure we understand that this is not a 50-50 kind of deal. Jesus is not half human and half god where you know which you may get sort of things like that in Greco-Roman mythology where you have kind of these mm-hmm. you know children who are the offspring of Zeus and whoever um and they're particularly strong heroes or something like that. Um that's not what we're talking about. Um
1: And in the same way the holy spirit Mary
2: conceiving through the work of the holy spirit is not a Zeus lusting after, yeah. a fine. Right. Young this right. is not this. This is not a sex act. Mm-hmm. This, that's not what this text is about. Um, this is about the Creator God um, doing a work of new creation through the agency of His Spirit in the womb of the Virgin. That's right. Um, and so, so this is not, yeah, a Greco-Roman kind of sexual encounter.
1: Just a word on that, if I can. It can't be denied that some myths and folktales do share a leading role of a virgin, right? And there's this interaction between the gods and men. But these supposed parallel accounts, they also possess some crucial inconsistencies. Like when examined, it's easy to discover that all these alleged parallels turn out to be quite different from the New Testament account and almost that all the pagans' accounts involve a sexual encounter of some kind, driven by lust or passion. It's the gods peering into the world of men and being jealous of us. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that's not this sort. This is God looking on the world in love and sending his son to die so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Uh, And so these myths are nothing more than legends about fornication between lustful divinities and human beings. And that's a fundamentally different account than the biblical testimony of the virgin birth. And uh, the result of those love childs between the pagan gods and the virgin women were half God, half man. Yeah. And as Matt was hinting, right. uh, and, and Hercules is a what Great example. Yeah. you would call a, a tertium quid, mm. a, a, a blending of two natures and beings. But Jesus is fully God and fully man. And the reason I bring this up is because I want to segue into another thing we wanted to talk about. In the first council of Ephesus in 431, there was a little bit of controversy surrounding the child that Mary bore and how to speak of him. Uh, And there was a, a man named Nestorius, and he argued that Mary is, he called her Christotokos. And if we said in the previous episode that Christ is the anointed one, she's the one who brings forth the anointed one. She's the bearer of the anointed one. And Cyril of Alexandria comes along and says, by doing so, we're undermining and not speaking of the fact that she gave birth to the one who is the Savior of the world, who is both God and man, So he says, no, she is Theotokos. She's the bringer forth of God. And so that was a conversation happening on in the early church. Did Mary give birth to the anointed one, or did she give birth to God? And obviously that it's a difficult conversation to have, mm-hmm. because if we say she gave birth to God, well, we know from Scripture God has no beginning and no end. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's always existed. So how can he be born, which seems to be a starting point? Uh, a mark on the x-axis. How can we speak of him that way? But if we don't affirm that she gave birth to God, it's as if we're denying the fact mm-hmm. that he
2: was who he says he is. Well, there, I, I would want to say maybe two things to that. Um, first of all, just take the birth narrative in Matthew's gospel where you get Jesus called Emmanuel God with us, mm-hmm. right? So so I think Matthew's on board with this is God coming forth from the womb of a virgin. Um <laughs> And, and, and by the end of Matthew's Gospel, God with us becomes Jesus with us. Yeah. So there's kind of an, an, a book-ending effect there. Uh, the second thing is that we have Jesus himself say things like, before Abraham was, I am. And so you you have that for Jesus, his birth is not necessarily his beginning. Um, he understands himself to be preexistent to God. Mm-hmm. The time when he was born of Mary.
3: Yeah, and I mean, if we think about the Virgin Birth, and and even and even if we go back to what we were talking about earlier about the skepticism surrounding it, um, it might be helpful to think about the Virgin Birth and what we'll talk about later in the Creed, the uh, the Resurrection of Christ. Um, think about those two things together. And uh, JF Packer's got this great little book called "Affirming the Apostles' Creed," and in his chapter on this here, the Virgin Birth, he he calls these the entrance and exit miracles. And so what we're thinking of here is if we're denying the virgin birth only on the basis of, um, I don't know, maybe materialistic, naturalistic presuppositions that uh, virgin conceptions are impossible, then um, we ought to be denying physical resurrection of Christ as well. I mean, so the virgin birth then becomes sort of a logical um, necessity, even though that's probably... Not what I'd want to say. It's a, it's an, a supernatural thing, but because it's supernatural, and, and if we affirm that it's supernatural, we also leave open the possibility that the resurrection, which too is supernatural, can can happen as well. Um, and another thing I might would want to say about that is that our questions about the virgin birth uh, mirror Mary's own questions. That's right. And she's she's just as confused as we are. I mean, and she asks Gabriel, "How will this be? How will I conceive a son since I am a virgin?" And, uh, and, he, and he points it right to the reality that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy, the Son of God. I mean, we have it right here in Luke 1 that the impossible becomes possible by the power of God the Spirit.
2: I think uh, we need to not overlook the reality that a lot of people really struggle with this this point virginal conception Mm -hmm. in fact um, and a lot of the folks who rejected it in the past it was an anti-supernaturalistic anti um, sort of materialistic anti-supernaturalist thing but there's a new book out written by my doctoral supervisor Andrew Lincoln called born of a virgin question mark and he comes along in the beginning of that book and says Hey, there are a lot of us out here who believe in the resurrection, um, and we we believe in miracles and signs and wonders, and we're not anti-supernaturalists, um, but we re- still really struggle with this virginal conception thing, and so um, and the rest of the book is an investigation into that. So we actually have a new and and people in our churches are going to maybe run into this too that it's not just folks who reject the resurrection on sort of an materialistic basis, um, you have people in the church now um, who, it's a real struggle, uh, and we don't need to denigrate that struggle, mm-hmm. but try to find ways to help that out. And and for me, if God can speak and bring being out of nothingness, um, then it seems to me that this is the the, the virginal conception, I mean, in, in one sense, this is the first act of new creation, isn't it?
3: Yeah. Yeah, I think the imagery there, I mean, and Matt, maybe you can speak to this, but the overshadowing and oh, the yeah. power of God. I mean that, and and the Holy Spirit. I mean that that echoes back to Genesis one in a certain sense, with the Spirit hovering. So I think the new creation themes are are pretty clear. Yeah,
1: and I yeah. would want to tie it back into Genesis as well. I mean, He is born of Mary, born of a woman, is how Paul talks about it in Galatians four, uh, and Christ was born from. The seed of the woman, because that's what Genesis said, right, in Genesis 3.15 when we have this first preaching of the gospel, the proto-euangelion, there's this promise that God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, this progeny that will come from the seed of the woman. And Paul makes a big deal about this in Galatians, right? He said it's not seeds plural, it's seeds singular, yeah. right? And Jesus is the seed of the woman. And as we already talked about in Romans 5, from the beginning, uh, the Old Testament is very patriarchal. I mean, go through the genealogy list, and it's always going to be an Adam begot, and Seth begot, and you will see a list of males, and yet, from the beginning, even in a patriarchal book like Genesis, where all the genealogies are from males, from the first genealogy here, the seed of the woman, the woman is named as the origin and source, which is maybe hinting at the virgin
2: birth from the beginning of the story. I think we, we also need to remember that a lot, a lot of our folks, uh, when we hear virgin birth, we think supernatural, and we think Jesus is God, right? So a lot of our kind of contemporaries hear virgin birth and think of that as being primarily about the deity of Christ, and we touched on this earlier, but we need to maybe make it more explicit, is that the virgin birth originally was about the humanity of Christ, not his deity. Sure, yeah. Or the virgin conception. I mean, that's huge. I mean, this is, and and so sort of recovering this aspect will give us back a human Jesus in a way that maybe a lot of us in resisting sort of Protestant liberalism and the kind of not, you know, a Jesus who's not divine, but just, just sort of a good teacher, or a good moral mm-hmm. example, kind of. We've re- as Protestants as evangelicals, we've reacted against that, and we've overemphasized the deity of Christ and forgot about his humanity. Right. But the Gospels give us a very human Jesus. That's good. Mm-hmm. He struggles and um, he has fears and he's tempted, and so we have this this very human Jesus. And the virginal conception is chapter one in that story.
1: Where heaven meets earth, dare I say, a hint of the consummation. We're talking about sure. the new creation, yeah, and, and yeah. all things will be, start that way. Up.
3: Well, I was just going to say that you know, from from my perspective as a person who professes these beliefs that are contained in this ancient creed. When I think about believing in Jesus Christ, the one who was born of the virgin Mary, I mean, I have to come to grips with the fact that that if Jesus isn't fully human like you just mentioned, then my salvation's on shaky ground. You know, that, that he can't save me except that he took on the nature that I have. You know, not in its complete fallenness. You know, I wouldn't want to go that far. But to say that he is what Hebrews talks about, a high priest who understands my weakness so that I can come to him for mercy and grace in a time of need. You know, and, and like Dave, what you were talking about, Galatians 4. He, he had to be born of a woman, born under the law, so that he could redeem those who were under the law. And And so through that redeeming work, then his sonship, and my, by my faith in him, his sonship becomes so, sort of my sonship, you know, that I am adopted into God's family. So I want to I wanna correct some of what I'm guilty of in neglecting um, the virginal conception, because it, it does lay the foundation in a certain sense for the salvation and, and the benefits that Christ procured for those who have faith in him.
0: Yeah, and it goes back to what Dave mentioned earlier when we we're talking about uh, Nestorianism. I'm not sure we identified it by name. Essentially, what it comes down to is that Jesus had two distinct natures, right? So the problem that you're left with is look at the atonement, which nature of Jesus died on the cross.
1: Which nature took on sin. Right. Which nature slept Mm -hmm. while the other nature upholds the world by the word of his power? Mm -hmm. Does he uphold the world of his power by his human nature? No, humanity is not capable of it. But he never shirks or loses his divine nature, correct?
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and And that... that ends up being a really, really big problem. As as we've said, if he's coming in as a representative for those who are under the law, how can he have possibly done that without going through step one, having a mob?
2: So one of the uh, one of the suggestions that comes up now, sort of in the reactions against a virginal conception, is that um, Joseph was the natural father of Jesus, and that the gospel writers were drawing on sort of typical Greco Roman mythological narrative, um, to say, you know, here's a spectacular birth narrative to illustrate the uniqueness of Jesus. And I don't, I don't want to misrepresent that, um, by saying too little about it, but you, you sort of get the idea. Um, so, so, so the suggestion there would be that Joseph is the natural father of Jesus and that the son of God language came along to illustrate his sort of unique messianic status or something like that. Um, C.S. Lewis has this great quote. Um, Joseph wasn't upset and threatened to divorce her because he didn't know where babies come from. Mm. Um, he was upset because he did. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and, and so I think, I think if we, if we trust the story there of of Joseph's reaction to Mary's pregnancy, um, you know, we, we need to take seriously that he's not the, he, you know, Scripture says Joseph is not the father right. uh, in the Gospels. And so, so we need to take that on board and let that be part of our, our understanding of this doctrine.
0: So I see, I see that there is this, uh, this importance that the Gospel writers are, are trying to get across that Jesus does have a humanity, that he is tied to, uh, to us as we, we exist in, in, our, in our flesh and in our being. Um, we don't really have issue with that coming from a naturalistic perspective. But that was a big deal back then, wasn't it? Especially in the, in the context that the creed is being written in, and we've talked about it on this show before, Gnosticism. No one really had an issue that Jesus was divine. The issue was, what do we do with the physical world? How dare you tie that right. to divinity?
2: In, in some ways... I mean, or in every way, maybe, um, the virgin birth, virgin conception and birth, affirms the goodness of the material creation, mm-hmm. right? And so, the, I mean, it, it's the incarnation where God takes on flesh. Um, the God who said in Genesis 1, very good, um, steps into that goodness through the incarnation, through the through the, the, the virginal conception and birth. And that is a reaction against... Um, anti-creational philosophies Mm -hmm. like you mentioned Gnosticism that says the material world is bad and sinful and we need to escape it you know and get free from this world well in in the in the scriptures in in the the Christian story is that not that we need to escape the world it's that God needs to invade it
1: yeah can I piggyback on that I mean an analogy that helps me think about scripture often is that God is the author and we are his characters. And, and that kind of helps me in my understanding of theodicy and parsing divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Uh, why is it always winter and every Christmas in Narnia? Because the White Witch has it that way. Why is it always winter and every Christmas in Narnia? Because C.S. Lewis wrote it that way. So we can make a distinction between the author and the characters. The beauty of the Christian story is what Matt's just hitting it now in the story of this world, the author wrote himself into it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it's Lewis, so help me out here, uh, where he says God made man in his image, and man marred that image. And so God made himself in our image so that he could restore his image in us. Mm-hmm. And that's the beauty of the incarnation, the rightful restoration of what matter was supposed to be, living the life we never lived, being born of a woman and never sinning, saying no to temptation all the way to the cross, being obedient, even to the point of death. And he dies bodily as a man, and he's raised bodily as a man, Mm -hmm. which gives us hope of the future resurrection. So his humanity is terribly
2: important. And he's exalted bodily as a man, and he reigns in heaven right now in a human body over heaven and earth.
0: Well, we've been discussing the fourth line of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. As Protestants, it would perhaps be wise to revisit Mary as a favored one of the Lord, a sure model of faithfulness and discipleship. And yet, she is someone far from perfect. She was, after all, the mother of the Savior. Nevertheless, a mother in need of the Savior herself. Truly, as the mother of Christ, she held that amazing title as Theotokos, the bringer forth of God. Yet unlike the Greco-Roman myths of a virgin conceiving a God-man hybrid, Christ is both fully man and fully God. Jesus was, after all, born of a woman to become a man to redeem humanity under the law, our second Adam. This birth, a virgin birth, mysterious as it may be, is a new creation, a reaffirmation of the goodness of God's material creation and the way in which God steps into that creation to redeem it from sin. Well, we hope you join us next time with special guest Dr. Ryan Putnam, from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, when we discuss the fifth line of the creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried.
3: So What Podcast is a production of the People of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org.